Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Big week in the uh, world of baseball and, you know, hopefully in technical accomplishments for the show before the show podcast as well. Hi, everyone. Uh, <laughs> welcome in. Episode number 93 of your favorite minor league baseball podcast from MILB.com. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. I am Tyler Mon in Denver, Colorado, and I uh, was told this week on Twitter that uh, I talk too fast. Um, so you talk too who, fast for people listening at one and a half times speed. Yeah, which I don't have as much sympathy. I think I talk too fast regardless, but I don't have as much sympathy. Like, you're the one choosing to speed it up. You know? Oh, yeah. The, I'm already... the theoretical you. I thought you were talking to me because no, I no, can't. No. The universal that. you. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. No, kudos so. to anybody who, who can listen to us yeah, at I'm like one and a half or two times speed. I, I've heard people talk about that. In terms of podcasts, it, it speeds up your listen time, and you can knock out so many more, um, you know, by listening it that quickly. That's great. I don't have the attention span for that. Uh, Not only that, but I feel like I would lose a lot. I feel like I wouldn't be able to pay attention quite as well. That's what I'm saying. Is that like yeah. uh, just being able to harp on every word? It, you would have to go back, or I would. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Uh, I would have to go back and be like, "Wait, what did they say there?" Or just the little things here and there. I just get too lost up. I do that at one time speed. I, yeah, I same here. A lot, so, um, so kudos to anybody it. listening at, yeah, at us at two times speed. Um, hopefully, we're not talking too quick this week, or maybe we're talking too quick and it's m- making it go faster. Who knows? We will do our best <laughs> to accommodate you. Uh, so it's episode number 93 of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. I'm Tyler. He's Sam. Number 12 Texas Rangers prospect Josh Morgan joins the show this week. We'll be talking with Josh here in just a little bit. A very versatile, very athletic, very toolsy kind of guy who spent last season with the now defunct High Desert Mavericks of the California League. He is likely ticketed for AA Frisco in 2017, but that all remains to be seen. We'll talk to Josh about what it's like to play a bunch of different positions and still succeed offensively. He came out of high school back in the third round of 2014. We'll cover some of that and a whole lot more on this week's edition of the show. Before we get into three strikes for this week, rate, review, subscribe, find the show. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on the Stitcher app. You can get us on your RSS feeds. MILB.com slash podcast is where you can find all of our past episodes. Last week with Carson Kelly of the St. Louis Cardinals. That one's up there right now. We've got our 2016 year in review episodes from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, back over Christmas and New Year's, Alex Kirloff, the Minnesota Twins. We had him two episodes ago. So in case you're just catching up on things after the holidays, you're really behind the times because it's been two and a half weeks into 2017 already, so get with it. Uh, but you can <laughs> find all that stuff there. So with that, we will get started on three strikes for this week's edition. And Sam, we're going to kick things off in the National League East one of the uh, more intriguing divisions heading into the 2017 season. But we're going to be talking about some of the top prospects in that division with the 2017 NL East prospect projections by one Sam Dykstra, which went up yesterday on the site. We're recording on Wednesday. Uh, Give us a lowdown on the National League East. Ozzie Albies and Dansby Swanson obviously are going to garner a lot of headlines, but that division, there's some really interesting talent throughout. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you touched on Albies and Swanson there. Um, You know, I, I, like I did last week with the AL East, I wanted to find something that wasn't just you know painfully obvious of who is a guy who technically has prospect status right now and we know is going to be attacked on Major League Starter on opening day. Um, so Andrew Benintendi was that to the American League East. He was the guy who we all know he's going to be an opening day starter barring injury. Uh, Dansby Swanson is that for the NL East. So I, I kind of wanted to put them off aside 
and say like here here's their numbers here's how they're going to do but it's not as interesting in terms of you know the storylines that are going to play out this spring what i do think it is interesting is still on that team and a guy who would very easily be playing to the left of Dansby Swanson uh very soon in the major leagues in Aussie Albies uh you might recall last off season we we're talking about this a lot. This one of the cooler stories of my spring training trip was how the Braves were kind of viewing what to do with Dansby Swanson and Ozzie Albies, both very good hitters by their own right, both very good defenders, uh, and both played shortstop. So the, what they ended up doing was they ended up kicking Ozzie Albies, who was playing in his age 19 season last year. He just turned 20 on January 7th of this year. So at Eight nineteen, they skipped him right above, right over Class A advanced. Put him at Double A Mississippi. They put Dansby Swanson in his first full season uh, after coming over from the D-backs. They put him at Class A advanced Carolina. They wanted them both playing shortstop. Uh, I talked to Braves player de- development director Dave Trembley, and he said, "You know, we the more we watched them, the more we looked at them, it just kind of became obvious that Swanson was going to be the shortstop." Uh, so. Even after a month, they moved them both up. They put Albies up even higher, AAA, Gwinnett, uh, Swanson going up to Mississippi. And then eventually, you know, Albies was a guy, he was hitting not terribly bad for being the only teenager in, you know, the AAA International League, but he hit 248 with a 659 OPS. That's fine. You want them to take their lumps. You want them to learn lessons. Uh, Trembley said specifically Albies learned how to, to kind of hit off-speed pitches or at least when to expect off-speed pitches there uh but they bumped him down and they moved him to second base so they could get that kind of double play partnership uh going and by all accounts you know that it worked really well uh Trembley said you know Swanson and Albies are kind of two peas in a pod now they work really well together they're always talking with each other trying to figure out how to make each other better uh so you know with Swanson eventually getting that call up to the majors performing very well in his first you know month plus uh with the Atlanta Braves. Uh we do know he's going to be the starting opening day shortstop. Um but Albie's, you know, he's still only 20. What do, what is he going to be or how long is it going to take him to get to the majors and kind of join him uh using the Steamer 600 projections from FanGraphs. Again, 600 just refers to the amount of played appearances given uh to any player in these projections, any position player. Uh, Ozzy Albee's still a little off the pace uh, from Swanson. Swanson's predicted to, or projected to have an 89 WRC plus, so a little below major league average, and be worth 1.8 WAR. Albee's would have an 82 WRC plus with a 1.1 WAR, uh, but his speed would still play really well. He would have 23 steals uh, if he were given a full season the ball. And you kind of look at what the se- second base options are right now for the Braves. You're looking at Sean Rodriguez, a guy who you know. It's kind of a journeyman. He, he would he's projected to be worth just 0.3 WAR. Jace Peterson, exactly replacement level at 0.0 WAR. Chase Darnode, who would be below replacement level at negative 0.9 WAR, and Micah Johnson, who they just brought over from the Dodgers after being DFA'd, he was even well even below Darno at negative 1.2 WAR. Uh, so it's kind of clear that the Braves are clearing up the lane for Ozzy Albies to take over at the Keystone. Um, and, you know, looking at his projections, he is their best option right now. I highly doubt he's going to be there next to Swanson, you know, come opening day. We're probably going to talk about him in that Super 2 conversation, uh, especially if the Braves, you know, compete the way we think they were, they will. They're, they might be, a, you know, a 500 team making that next step in the rebuilding process, but not exactly competing in a, the same division as the Nationals and Mets. So, uh, yeah, it will be really interesting to see how Albies kind of plays along. He's still going to be one of, if not the youngest player in the International League come opening day. Um, but it is nice to kind of see that the lane is so open for him and he, you know, for a system that is talking so much about bringing up its young talent and building from its base um, that he seems, you know, pretty ready to take over whenever they decide to give him the call. One of the systems that we spent a lot of 2016 talking about was the Philadelphia Phillies and the way that they have really reshaped, retooled, restocked, what they have in that system approaching the major leagues. And there are some encouraging numbers, especially on the pitching side. Um, But there are guys who you know are going to be in the mix no matter what. Andrew Knapp and Jorge Alfaro, one of those guys will be on that opening day roster in Philadelphia. That system seems like it's still maybe a year away from a lot of those guys breaking out. But what stood out to you there? 
Yeah, definitely starting with that that catching conversation, um, you know, between Knapp and Alfaro last year, going into it, um, you know, Alfaro had just come off the trade from the Rangers and the Cole Hamels deal. Uh, Knapp was coming off a breakout season. Uh, they decided to put them at two separate levels too to get their at bats. Now both men are on the or both guys are on the forty man roster. Um, so they're both legit options to back up uh, Cameron Rupp come opening day. Uh, it, it might all come down to, you know, who, which one of them the Phillies thinks meets more consistent at bats because, you know, you're not going to get those at, at bats in the majors. You want the, the better option there. Obviously, of course, you want the better player to be at the higher level. Um, but I think in that case, since Alfaro is the better prospect, they're going to want him playing more regularly. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised to see him at Lehigh Valley and Nap, you know, in the majors in Philadelphia. Uh, Steamer thinks they're they're about equal right now as things stand. Uh, Nap with a 73 WRC plus and a 0.9 projected WAR, over 450 plate appearances. Uh, Alfaro at, with a 69 WRC plus and a 0.7 WAR. So you, depending on how things play out this spring, you know, injuries could happen. One could catch fire in the spring. Whatever. Uh, you know, it. it is a little bit of a coin flip. I kind of give the advantage to Knapp. Um, but in terms of like the sexier names that we talk about for that group, uh, J.P. Crawford actually led uh, Philly's prospects in projected war at 1.3. I think he's still a couple steps away, or at least one step away, I should say, You know, after his AAA Le- Lehigh Valley season last year in which he only hit 244 with a 647 OPS. Uh, still provides stellar defense. I think if he were to get a full season, it would be worth more than 1.3 war because that's not taking his defense into account. Um, but I, I don't think they're exactly going to push him too quickly until he shows that he can at least hit, you know, above 270 with a 350 OBP uh, at AAA. So they're they're not going to get too aggressive with him just yet. Uh, you mentioned the pitchers. This was maybe the the most confounding thing of the steamer projections. Uh, they had Thomas Eshelman in that Philly system, the number 18 prospect known for his incredible control during his time at, in college, uh, worth a projected 2.3 war, uh, which is kind of just astounding. That beats more established guys who we knew made their major league debut in 2016, like Zach Eflin at 1.3 and Jake Thompson at 1.1. Uh, beats you know fellow prospect and former number one overall pick Mark Appel at 1.7. Um, so Steamer seems to really like his chances. I'm not going to you know, exactly board that train quite yet. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they really like, you know, he did put up a 5.14 ERA last year in 59 and third innings at double-A Redding, uh, but he had a much better 3.29 FIP, and I think that's what Steamer really likes about him. Uh, I think the Phillies are going to want to see him, you know, those numbers kind of normalize at to, at probably at Redding to start the year in 2017. Uh, before you know, they kick him up two levels to the majors already. Strike two this week, Sam. We are going to uh, stay with a projection sort of theme. MLB Pipeline is out with its 2017 top 10 right-handed and left-handed starting pitching prospects. And on that list, we see some shuffling from what uh, we saw at the end of the 2016 season. One of the things that really stands out, Alex Reyes is now the top-rated right-handed pitching prospect in minor league baseball of the St. Louis Cardinals organization. Lucas Giolito, formerly in that spot, has dropped to number three. Tyler Glass now remains in the number two spot there. Uh, Back-to-back White Sox prospects at three and four in Giolito. And the now infamous Michael Kopech, who threw 110 miles an hour in an off-season workout, in a story that went viral yesterday. Uh, behind those guys in the top 10 for right-handed pitchers, Francis Martes of the Houston Astros at number five, Anderson Espinosa now with the San Diego Padres at number six, Brent Honeywell, friend of the podcast, friend of the site, number seven of the Tampa Bay Rays organization, Jose De Leon, same for him, number eight from the Los Angeles Dodgers, Jeff Hoffman of the Colorado Rockies is number nine, and Reynaldo Lopez, yet another trade acquisition for the Chicago White Sox is number 10. So the White Sox have three of the top 10 right-handed pitching prospects in baseball going into 2017 via MLB Pipeline. Over on the left-hander side, Josh Hader leads the way, the Milwaukee Brewers. Then it is Jason Groom, the 2016 first-round draft selection of the Boston Red Sox. Braxton Garrett, likewise a 2016 first-round draft selection of the Miami Marlins organization. Colby Allard, the left-hander in the Brave system, is number four. Yohander Mendez, a teammate of uh, today's guest on the show before the show podcast, Josh Morgan in the Texas Rangers system. He's number five. Amir Garrett, who has joined the show last season. We got a 
chance to talk to Amir, the lefty in the red system. He's number six. A.J. Puck, 2016 first-rounder, is number seven in the A's system. Justice Sheffield, formerly of the Cleveland Indians, now with the New York Yankees, number eight. Number nine spot, another Braves pitching prospect, Sean Newcomb formerly the Angels, trade acquisition there. Steven Gonsalves of the Minnesota Twins is number 10. Two things stand out to me here. On the left-hander side, so many guys taken in 2016. That's really impressive. On both sides, so many guys who have changed organizations because of trades. That really stands out in these two groups. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you mentioned the the White Sox and the way they've kind of picked up guys, you know, between Giolito, Kopech, and Lopez. Um, you know, you mentioned Giolito kind of falling off. I think a, a little bit has to do, you know, with the, what he showed at the major league level last year. Um, same thing with Lopez. Lopez stays in that conversation at number 10. Uh, but neither guy exactly took off. And I think their uh, stock kind of took a hit because of that. As a, you know, you compare that to Alex Reyes, who just was absolutely dominant in his short stint in the majors last year. You know, now he's number one. Uh, I think he posted a 1.57 ERA with 52 strikeouts and 46 innings for the Cardinals last year, just barely holding on to that prospect status. Uh, but so many became so enthralled with the way he took to the majors last year that he always felt like he was going to be the number one right-handed pitching prospect. Now we kind of make that official uh, with MLB Pipeline's picks. The thing that stands out to me is that I don't think anybody really likes this left-handed group as much as they like the right-handed group. Uh, you know, you, you look at l- the left-handed group, the first guy on the list is Josh Hader, um, you know, who's a guy I really liked. He, he was absolutely dominant last year in double-A Biloxi. Uh, you know, did not take to the uh, Pacific Coast League in the way I think the Brewers would have liked necessarily, but still, you know, a, a guy who's only 22, he's going to be 23 uh, come opening day time. Uh, he posted a 5.22 ERA with AAA Colorado Springs. Still struck out 88 batters in 69 innings. Uh, there's a debate of whether he's going to be you know, a, a starter going forward or if he could just be a dominant left-handed reliever because against left-handers, he's basically untouchable uh, with the way he situates himself on the mound uh, going up a- against that left-handed side. He's like bearing down right on top of you. Never mind, he's six foot three. Uh, so he's got some length to him as well. Um, but, you know, you, so he's the number one left-handed pitching prospect now. MLB Pipeline gave him an overall grade on the 20 to 80 scale of 55, uh, which is good. It's above average. You know, they think he would be an above average starting pitcher. Um, but it doesn't exactly scream excitement. You have to go to, I think it's Kopech is the first one at number four for the right-handers, who's 55. And I think that's 55 with a lot of room to grow as opposed to Hater, which is 55, 60 is maybe his ceiling. I, I feel like Kofi could be more than that. Um, so you're just kind of the state of the game right now. This isn't something that is common necessarily. It's just the way the game is at present. Um, I think the right-handers are a little bit more of an exciting group at ter- in terms of ceiling. Uh, than the left-handers, but you know you you can never have too much left-handed pitching, and all of those guys, you know I wouldn't be surprised to see fairly high uh, when the top 100 comes out in a couple weeks. And with that, we're, we're going to kind of spin now to our third strike of the week. Uh, we've got a prospect Q&A up on the site right now uh, from our friend Michael Leboff, who talked to Yankees number 11 prospect Dylan Tate. Uh, you might know Dylan Tate as a guy. He was the first. Pitcher taken in the 2015 draft, coming out of UC Santa Barbara, uh, was number four overall, eventually signed for $4.2 million with the Rangers, and then absolutely just, you know, was not effective in his first full season. Got sent to Class A Hickory, posted a 5-1.12 ERA in 65 innings. Uh, Opposing batters hit 311 against him. He had a 1.62 whip just not the numbers you were expecting out of a college pitcher pitching at the class a level. Uh, Michael kind of talked to him about that. What was going into those struggles? Uh, I don't want to get too much into that. Cause I think people should read it now. Uh, obviously eventually got sp- spun off to the, to the Yankees in the Carlos Beltran deal. Um, it was probably the most notable name in that trade outside of Beltran, but certainly with, you know, the way he was dealt, it was clear that his stock had taken a huge hit. Tyler, I'll kind of turn it to you here. What do you, what do you kind of think about Dylan Tate's 2016 based on this conversation Michael had with him? 
Uh, and what do you think we can kind of expect for him in 2017, you know, after a year in the AFL, after an offseason in which he can kind of correct some of these issues? Yeah, that's, I think, one of the really beneficial things for Dylan Tate is he did get that AFL experience. Um, I like a lot of these questions and a lot of his answers in this Q&A. Michael kind of got the the story of how he found out about the trade, um, what it was like getting into the organization, being part of an organization that's done so much to overhaul its minor league system over the last few seasons. Uh, but one of the things that I really found interesting was Michael asked uh, this question, quote, it seems like the Yankees were eager to let you work with Charleston pitching coach Justin Pope. What was the experience like working? Working with him, what did he have to offer to get your game back on track? And Dylan's response was, working with Justin Pope was really enjoyable. He really wanted me to just go out there and be myself. We worked on a lot of basic things that I already do, and he just helped me do what I do naturally but better. We slowly improved my delivery with repetition. That is a short answer that says a lot. I think it says a lot about the Yankees organization uh, in wanting to make sure that he hooked in with somebody who already was able to kind of reassure that there are skills there, there is talent there, there are mechanics that are workable there, stuff like that to just build on rather than tear down and start over. Um, that, I think, is huge for any prospect, I think it's especially huge for a guy who gets traded and is now in a quote unquote change of scenery type of situation. I think that really helps with somebody like Dylan Tate. Now beyond that, then he goes to the AFL. He's able to build on things there playing as one of the younger guys in that circuit. That's huge exposure and it's big experience to go up against really good bats day after day. Uh, you know, depending on what your schedule is like when you're throwing down in the fall league. So I like that the Yankees seem to have acquired a guy who they know has a very high ceiling and treated him that way rather than acquiring a guy and thinking, well, everything you did in the Texas system didn't work. Let's start from scratch here. That I think is a, a sign of what they see in Dylan Tate's maturity. Um, and I think that really speaks to what you can probably expect from him in 2017. Now, as he continues to climb the ladder, the nice thing about being in the Yankee system, he's not going to have to deal with, and now this is not necessarily the case in the Rangers organization anymore. Now that they're no longer in the California league, but he doesn't have to deal with a whole lot of real difficult spots to work as a pitcher. Tampa is pretty pitcher-friendly. Trenton as well, the Eastern League in large part, especially early on in seasons, is, is pretty pitcher-friendly too. So I think this really seems like the type of situation that could factor into a big rebound season. He was very, very highly touted coming out of school. When he went in the draft, uh, there were several publications that rated him as being the highest ceiling member of that draft class for the guys coming out of college. It just hasn't worked out that way so far for him. But Dylan Tate, you know, he's drafted two years ago. He was taken in the first round in 2015. He's 22 years old. He's still very, very young, still a lot to work with there. I'll be anxious to see what this season is like for him. Yeah, and what I'll pretty particularly, you know, paying mind to is whether he's going to be in a starting role or a relief role. I mean, right when he came to the Yankees, they moved him to the bullpen. Uh, he moved back to the bullpen for the AFL. Uh, if they believe in him as much as, you know, they've talked about publicly and as much as they've shown and, you know, as much as you can see in this Q and a, uh, it feels like they're going to try to move him back to the, the starting rotation. Um, obviously you want to get as much, value out of a, a pitching prospect as you can get and that's in a starting role versus relief role but uh you know with his stuff you know he's got a, a good fastball and a good slider kind of lacking that third pitch to make him a really good starter um you know maybe they just decide I, i'll i'll be interested to see how long that leash is is it we'll see what you have in the spring and then we'll decide from there is it we'll give you two months to start if it doesn't work we're going to change it up again um you know, they, they seem to be confident with him and giving him all the backing and time he needs, but uh, how is that going to play out in 2017? We'll have to keep an eye on that. We had a foul ball that you tossed out there, Sam, that I'm very excited about. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's something – it's a Tyler Mon gem, I would say, or just special. I don't know. Which is a rarity. Yeah. Uh, somebody in the office today was read your Twitter rantings last night and said he needs to get a hobby. And my response was, this is <laughs> your just, hobby. Let me just pause for a second. Uh, being based outside the office, every so once in a, every once in a while you get an inkling of just how much everybody in the office seems to be really annoyed with you on a constant <laughs> basis. So I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Well, let, let, let's not use the royal you this time to bring this opening segment full circle. This is not the royal you. This is specifically you, Tyler. Specifically me. Specifically, specifically you. the annoying one. No, no, you're not annoying at all. No, this is just – it raptured all our intention. Uh 
you you know we talk so much in, on the podcast with Ben about logos, and we'll do that again later today. But uh, one theme always is Brandios, and and they make a lot of logos across the minor leagues. And one of their themes is mascot swinging bats. So Tyler decided to to take it to Twitter and just explain his thoughts on each of them. So Tyler, I'm going to kind of give you the forum here, uh, full hog, and and take it away. Two things. One. I was working last night. This was during a work shift, so I don't need a hobby because I was on the clock. I was getting paid to tweet. Yeah, that doesn't make it better. logos. I think it makes it way better. Does it make that it was, better? This is part of the brand, man. This is part of the this okay. Is the, this is the content that people crave. Anyway, I said you were going to go, so let's go. Um. Anyway, uh. So. Yeah, well, this has been a discussion that I've had with people around minor league baseball for quite some time, but um, it's it's this will this will come a little bit fuller circle because I want to put a blog post together about these because Brandios, I think, sort of discovered Brandios, formerly Plan B branding, kind of the the gurus of minor league baseball rebranding. Every single minor league rebrand of this offseason or redesign of this offseason has been Brandios. Um, and one of their hallmarks now is this swinging character logo now brandios actually responded to some of these tweets last night i couldn't tell if they were annoyed and like kind of defensive or if they're just explaining themselves but um i discovered two things one they seem to be a little touchy about uh people going after him for uh you know all these swinging logos and two they are also a brand that just searches their name on twitter because i didn't tag them but then they were all of a sudden all up in my menchies um but the the discussion was just among all of these guys or characters or inanimate objects, who has the best swing? So there's a swinging Sasquatch for the Eugene Emeralds. There's a swinging bear for the Mobile Bay Bears. There is now a swinging wood duck for the Downies Wood Ducks. There's a swinging mechanic for the Inland Empire 66ers. There's a swinging piece of celery who's actually swinging a piece of celery for the Wilmington Blue Rocks. Uh, Lehigh Valley has a swinging iron pig, but it kind of seems like they just drew up a body around the normal logo for the iron pigs. Uh, the New Orleans Baby Cakes. They now have, I don't know if you could call this a swinging logo, but the baby coming out of the cake is holding a bat. Um, one that I had actually kind of forgotten about, San Antonio has the mascot Balapeno, who is a jalapeno. Uh, they have a swinging Balapeno logo in which he's dressed up like Davy Crockett, because Davy Crockett obviously died at the Alamo, yada, yada. Uh, but the discussion was, among these, who sort of has the best swing? And I'm going to explore this more in depth. Uh, with a guy who I've discussed it a lot with, Jason Schwartz, who's the radio voice of the Lancaster Jetthawks in the California League. I'm going to explore this a little bit more in depth, I think, in a blog post soon. But uh, there are just so many of these to evaluate. But the thing that stood out to me, two things, really. Number one, the the footwork in the swings of the El Paso Chihuahua and Teddy Roosevelt, the alternate logo for the uh, Frisco Rough Riders, it's just brutal. El Paso's guy, the, he's a chihuahua. He's swinging a bone. It's not a bat, but he, it's a right-handed swing, and the bat appears to be carrying him, like, to space. Like, his left foot is up off the ground. Right foot is on its tiptoes. Like, it just seems like trouble. Like, he's going to lose himself into outer orbit. But Teddy Roosevelt's, and there's an explanation behind this. Teddy Roosevelt is swinging like he's just back-legged a 450-foot home run with his right leg in front and his left leg bent behind him, but where he is finishing his swing, he's holding the bat over his left shoulder, which would suggest that he is swinging wrong because when you swing right-handed, you finish over your left shoulder, but when you swing right-handed, your left foot is in front. So I was very confused about this, tweeted it out. That one got a lot of traction. Brandios actually responded and said that the reason behind that is apparently Teddy Roosevelt was not very familiar with the game of baseball, so they drew it up that way as if he was, I don't know, confused, but somehow still no, smacking no, no, fingers. No, 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 no. I'm, not, I'm not accepting no, it. No, I'm not either. It's, uh, and, and they're the backing I'm into not, that one. And it's not physically possible. You couldn't yeah. swing like that anyway. I think they just thought it looked somewhat aesthetically pleasing until you think about the physics of it, and they're just like, oh, well, Teddy didn't know baseball, so it's fine. It's like, ah, it's... I don't think so. <laughs> if Teddy didn't like baseball, you wouldn't put him in a baseball bat. Don't no. try this. Like, and later on, by the way, because then of course I ended up researching this. But Teddy Roosevelt, who had made fun of baseball apparently when his children were young, 
And then later on, his kids started playing baseball, and then he loved baseball, so I'm not taking it. Uh, but secondly, people really dug the swinging Sasquatch logo of the Eugene Emeralds um, because I pointed out to them that the way it is swinging is supposed to evoke the swinging friar, the San Diego Padres alternate logo, um, which I think a lot of people found interesting. Uh, but the M's are no longer a uh, Padres affiliate. They were when they got that logo. Now they're a Cubs affiliate, won the Northwest League last year. I'm not sure if they even use that logo really anymore. But we'll be discussing this further because uh, nothing gets the people going like logos and uniforms, and apparently they make fun of you in the office for enjoying talking about them. <laughs> it's, a, it's not making fun of. It was just like – Who it was, was it? it went, Who was it? I'm not naming names. Was it That's Dan? not my job here. That's, I'm not naming names. Uh, it was just the amount the, – the length to which this went on. And the amount of detail you poured over it—it it, it was, you know, it was impressive. That's that's what it came down to. We were just all impressed. You know, I uh, I tweeted out as a preface to that um, last night. Let me let me find the exact quote so I know that I am not shortening myself and what I was going for here. Um, but what my major driving force was. I said, quote, one of these days I'm going to get back on the horse tweeting baseball instead of depressed takes on politics and life. One of these days. And then I and then I broke through. Good. With some uh, with some logo chatter. Yes. Why not? Some so, good, healthy logo chatter. So be on the lookout for that. And I can tell it'll be a big hit in the office. Um, <laughs> with that, we wrap up this week's edition of Three Strikes and a Foul Ball on the show before the show podcast. And coming up, Josh Morgan of the Texas Rangers joins the show to talk about moving positions, being able to play all over the infield and uh, behind the plate for the Texas Rangers organization, what he set for in 2017 and more. That's coming up next on the show before the show. Headed to the Texas Rangers organization as we get uh, toward the one-month mark before pitchers and catchers report to spring training for 2017. We're actually a little bit past it for some teams, and Josh Morgan is our guest on this week's edition of the show before the show. Josh, uh, getting these final few weeks in before everything really gets ramped up, how is the, the late stage of the offseason going for you? Oh Well, first I want to thank you guys for having me. Um, it's a you know, blessing to be on your guys' show, and uh, I thank you guys. But, um, you know, the, the last month of the offseason is always – you know, the most exciting, you know, just because, um, you know, you start to actually get that itch and you're actually like, oh, man, I'll be with the fellas again. And, and you know, you are you're, you're start to hit and you start to, uh, you know, just take ground balls and do all the, the little things that uh, <clears throat> that gets you ready for the season. And, um, you know, it's just a really exciting time, you know, hanging out with uh, all your buddies in the off season. Um, but, you know, I'm really excited for, for the 2017 season and, um, you know, good things in the in store. So all is good. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your 2016. Last year, mm -hmm. spring training, you get to kind of move all over the place. You get tested somewhat yeah. behind the plate. You play in the middle infield. You're at third base. Last year, you played third, short, and second in high desert. Uh, one of the things that really stood out last year about your spring, especially got some time at the major league level, uh, filling in and late in some Cactus League games and really making an impression, it seems like, on both the coaching staff at the major league level, Jeff Bannister and his staff, and also on the player development side in the Rangers organization. Being able to embrace all of these different things that the Rangers have asked you to do, especially now that you're you know a year removed from learning somewhat of the trade behind the plate, how did that right. influence your 2016 and what you were able to do with High Desert? Um, you know, it's just really taking on that mindset of just, you know, whatever the team, I know it's a cliche, but you know, whatever the team needs, you know, I'm there for, it, you know, and I just, I'm happy to, you know, fill the role and I'm happy that I am able to play, you know, short, second, third, wherever they really need me. Shoot. You know, I mean, might even see me in the outfield or some, uh, you know, next couple of years. So you never really even know, but um, you know, it's good. I, I glad I got, I'm glad I got, um, you know, some big league time up there uh, last spring training. Hopefully I can get some uh, again this spring training, but you know, it's just the having of the good mindset of, you know, wherever, you know, my name shows up on the lineup card that day, it's I'm going to get the job done, you know, and it's just, uh, it's cool for me to, you know, play different positions and, and kind of see the field from a different view, um, you know, every day, because I don't know, you know, going in, you know, say it's the middle of the season, you know, I don't know if I'm going to play third base or short, maybe second that, that upcoming day, you know, so you're always going to kind of keep, uh, keeps your mind kind of always rolling, but, um, you know, it's good. I, I think it's a, it's a great mindset to have to, you know, be very versatile and, and just, uh, you know, just enjoy the process, you know. So it's, it's all good. Yeah. At, at what point did the Rangers kind of have that discussion with you of just, hey, we're going to put you wherever you need to be prepared, 
no matter what it, mm-hmm. what it, you know, what we're going to put down there, you need to be prepared for something new every day. Um, what, what was that right. conversation like? Um, honestly, man, I don't, I don't even remember having a conversation that kind of said like, Hey, you're going to do this and this and this. But you know, my first year, when I first got drafted, I, um, I played mostly second and then a little and a little bit of short, but I didn't play any third. And then, uh, my second year, I played uh, short and a little bit of third, or uh, I'm sorry, yeah, short and third. And this year I played all over, you know. So um, they did tell me that, hey, you're going to be, um, you know, very versatile with us in the organization. And I, I honestly like that because the more positions you play, the more, you know, opportunities you get, I feel like, you know. And um, I'm very excited for, um, you know, the, the 27th season, 2017 season coming up, you know, just where I'm going to play. I, I don't even know. I'm going to play, but I'm, you know, going in there ready. Um, but the conversation, it was, it was a good conversation just saying that, you know, we're happy to have you to, you know, to, to play all three positions, you know, and it's just, um, uh, it's, it's good to have them know that I can do all three. So, um, you know, wherever they need, I'm uh, obviously up for it. So it's all good. All good. Yeah. Kind of speaking of that, uh, Tyler kind of touched on it in the first question, but you know, in last year in instructional league, you were listed, as a catcher slash infielder, uh, yeah. what is it like playing behind the plate? I mean, I know it's one thing in instructs where it's a little you know different from minor league games day in and day out. But mm-hmm. what was that transition like? How much did they kind of let you get in behind the plate there, and how much are you looking forward to do that in the future? Yeah, man, it's let me tell you, it's real different. I had a total new respect for catchers after I put the gear on for the first couple of weeks. Um, it's hard. I'm not gonna lie to you. It's hard. Um, it's a mental game, you know. And it's just, it, like I said, total respect for catchers. Um, but uh, it was good, honestly. I had the more and more I did it, the more and more I understood the position, the more and more I kind of had had fun with it, you know. Um, I don't know my plan yet. Uh, this upcoming spring training, you know, what I might be doing, how much time I'll get behind the plate. Um, but um, you know, it, it was. It's a it, to, it takes a toll on your body for sure. So you definitely have to take care of your body as well. And I, I honestly didn't know what went into catching. You know, I everyone catches, you know, Little League, and I caught a little bit in high school. But to catch at the pro ball level, you know, it just you have books and books on, you know, scouting reports and have to learn different things. And it's just uh, it's crazy. But uh, like I said, a whole new respect for catchers. Um, but uh, it, it was good. It was good. So like I said, I don't know exactly what my plan is yet. But, um, you know, always up for the, the challenge. Well, Josh, let's pivot a little bit and talk about 2016. You put up really good numbers with High Desert, 128 games, slash 300, 367, 394. And it was such a unique season uh, in High Desert, obviously. I mean, a California League yeah. title in itself is going to be. But it's late in the year that you guys find out that that team is not going to be anymore for 2017. We heard a lot about bakersfield uh on the Mm -hmm. on the national minor league scale i think it's kind of you know to equate it to uh to something in baseball history i think people romanticize the departure of the brooklyn dodgers nobody really thinks about the departure of the new york giants as much it's kind of the the same way it was with bakersfield and high desert and we don't really haven't gotten a chance to hear much from the inside of what it was like for you guys with that team but you you roll to a league title what were those last few weeks like after finding out that that team wasn't going to be around anymore you know that news Mm -hmm. that emotion and then that run through the playoffs you know the run through the playoffs was unreal you know we lost the first game to um to Lancaster and uh you know just knowing that it was the last year in high desert I think was just gave us even more you know like you know of a mindset to hey man we're gonna go out on top and even though you saw it even the last couple weeks of the season you know you saw more fans start to show up and and um, you know, just everyone starts to really get in it a little more. And then playoffs was was uh, you know a great experience. Playoffs are always a great experience, no matter what level you're at. Um, but uh, it was good, man. I, it, we we did what we had to do. We we went out on uh, on top, and it was just a really fun year. It was a it was a you know year that was filled with a lot of ups and downs. But I mean, who who doesn't have ups and downs? You know, in a in a uh, long season like that. So, but it was good. You know, we did what we needed to do, and. Uh, we can say that we went out on top with the last high desert championship. So it was all good. 
Take us through that stretch. I mean, you like you said, you lose the first game of the postseason. It's only a three-game series uh, against right, Lancaster. Right. So, you know, I mean, your backs are to the wall. You rally in that series. You win a league championship. You know, those last few innings, that last out, when you look back mm-hmm. on that now, a few months removed, what do you remember about that night? The night, the night was crazy, man. Um, just it, the game went by so slow where it was, it was like – you know, you got three. Even we were ahead in the ninth inning by, I'm going to say, around four or five runs maybe, four runs. And it just it felt like a one-run one, one ball game the whole time. And especially playing in high desert, you know, where you know, wind blows a little bit more than any other ballpark. But uh, it just still felt like it was a nail-biter um, when we really had a comfortable lead. But that's how it was for the – for really – playoff baseball for me it was like there is no time you cannot settle at all you, whenever you can you know push the gas do it more and more and more and that's the way I feel like we kind of went about it and you know uh I think obviously we 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 came out on top but it was it was a good experience you know winning that year or winning last year and then two years ago uh it was kind of the same core group who won in the South League and we were with Hickory and so to go through that two years in a row was was a blessing man it was it was unreal so it was just it's you know first three years of pro ball have two rings it's just it's unreal you never really think that you never some guys you know go through minor leagues big leagues never win a ring um i know it's a minor league ring but still it's a it's, it's a ring so um you know it's good it's just good to say that you know we won so it's all good and beyond the championship um and that playoff run you know what what kind of memories do you have of high desert i mean for people who you know, only get to know it as a really offensive environment. What can you kind of tell us about what it was like to play there? Yeah. You know, even before you knew the the team was, mm-hmm. was leaving. You know, it was it was different, man. It was different. Obviously, I'm from California, and uh, I live like an hour and a half away from from High Desert. So um, the experience for me was might have been a little bit different for everyone else, just because or all the rest of my teammates, just because I had a lot of you know friends and family come out almost every single weekend. Um, but, uh, it was a hitter's ballpark, uh, but you still had to guys say like, Oh, you hit pop-ups are going out. Like you still had to get a little push on the ball, you know, for, to make it go over the fence. You can't just hit regular pop-ups, but, um, it was a good experience. You know, we, we did what we had to do and, um, you know, on to, on to the next. So, uh, that's, a, that's pretty much all I got on high desert. No, <laughs> good people over there. Good people. There very go. good people over there. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, it was it was good. It was all good. Cool. Well, I, I feel like we talked a lot about your defense, so I kind of want to pivot quickly to to your offense before you know we move on. But uh, you know, okay. like Tyler said, you're you were a 300 hitter last year in the Cal League. You're a career 300 hitter in the Meyer leagues. How you know for a guy who's probably going to Double A Frisco next year, you're going to get a little more attention from Rangers fans. They're going to get to know you a little bit more. How would you kind of describe your offensive approach and what areas of growth do you kind of see yourself, or what are you kind of working on in that department? Um, as you enter, you know, the upper minors? Um, I think, you know, my game needs work everywhere. You know, it's not just, just one spot in the offensive department. There's, you know, obviously defense, offense, uh, you know, speed work and everything, all five tools, you know, I feel like can never be, you can never be so good that you don't need to work on one certain tool. Um, so I'm just continuing to work, you know, on everything. Um, mainly my, my power, I would say I'm, I'm, starting to really trying to get some more, uh, you know, driving balls in the gaps and, and you know, line drive starting, starting to turn into home runs. Um, so that's one of the big things I'm working on. But still, like I said, working on every single aspect of the game. Um, my approach, I would say, is really just to stay at the middle, uh, not to not try to do too much. Um, you know, just when I get my pitch, try to, you know, put good contact, put a good swing on the ball and, and you know, let let – you know, the rest kind of take care of itself. Um, not trying to, you know, do too much with the ball, like I said, but, you know, obviously just stay up the middle and, uh, you know, just uh, not try to swing too hard. You know, I know a lot of guys have crazy, uh, crazy swings, but I'm just trying to keep it simple. All right. Well, I, I want to end on this one uh, with something you told us before we started recording here. Uh, you said, you know, you've been hanging out with Chance Cisco today. Uh, as people mm-hmm. know, a catcher in the Orioles system, you know, one of the best catching prospects in the game right now. 
Uh, we talked a little bit about you potentially catching. Besides ice your knees every day, what has he put, kind of told you about what it's going to take to kind of make it at that position? Um, you know, where he's he's obviously one of the smartest dudes in, in his organization and in minor league baseball, period. Uh, he'll be in the show within the next, you know, probably this year. Um, but, you know, he's just told me it takes a lot of – it's a lot on the mental side, you know, a lot of studying, a lot of studying for the um, – for the upcoming team you might face and, and just, you know, really taking care of your body, really starting to eat healthy, you know, eating healthy is a big thing for, for him. He told me is, uh, is to do that. And, and really just, you know, not try to look at it in the big picture, you know, just kind of, or look at it in the big picture, not take it. Um, how do I put this, you know, just taking it day by day, you know, not seeing, uh, a whole lot of different things, bad things might, might go on. Just, you know, he said, Hey, just take it day by day. And, and, uh, you know, obviously he's had a lot of success and he's going to be, you know, a great big league play- player for the for the Orioles. And, um, you know, he's a great dude. One of my friends for – we played All-Stars um, when we were like in, shoot, I don't know, maybe fourth or fifth grade together. And so we've known each other for a while. He's from Corona too. And, um, you know, we've always kind of been together. So we kind of went through this whole thing together, which is, which is good. But, you know, a really smart guy, one of my best friends, and, um, you know, obviously gives me great advice, you know. So it's all good. Corona, California's Josh Morgan, the number 12 ranked prospect in the Texas Rangers organization, joining the show and getting set for spring training 2017. And wherever that finds you, whatever level and whatever position, Josh, we wish you all the best of luck. And thanks a ton for joining us on the show and enjoy the last few weeks before everything gets rolling again. Appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Texas Rangers prospect Josh Morgan is on Twitter. He is at Josh Morgan. I'm always impressed by guys who have like common names, but they're the ones who get the Twitter handle with the name. It's good for Josh Morgan. It's an easy one for all of you Rangers fans to find out there. And with that, we transition to uh, our own favorite dude on Twitter, Benjamin Hill, who doesn't have Benjamin Hill, but he does have Ben's Biz. Hi, Ben. Hi, I have Ben's Biz. Uh, on Instagram, I do not. I am the Ben's Biz because Ben's Biz on Instagram is whoever has that post or that uh, that handle um, has no posts on their account, and their profile pic is just stacks of money. <laughs> Somebody expecting. I think they're trying like, to extort. Trying to, yeah, that's true. Because Probably are. two is more worth extorting than a minor league baseball writer. At Benjamin Hill, his bio is father, husband, product manager, and he lives in California. I'm so 0 for 3 on that front, so just I can't. Uh, wow. I can't believe somebody would take Ben's Biz and just be like, I'm going to sit on this. I'm going to sit on this. Yeah. Try to cash I, in I on that you. big Ben's Biz money. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's what happens when you become as famous as I am. People <laughs> well, ben, kind let's... of make a buck. Let's get started. Uh, a new look, the latest new look. Last week, obviously, we spent a lot of time discussing the Down East Wood Ducks. This week, no new name, but a new look for the Memphis Redbirds, who were one of the teams really in need of a, a refresh. And they got a really good one, uh, which is very neon-inspired. It's kind of Memphis nightlife-inspired. Tell us about this new look for the uh, the Redbirds. Yeah, well, uh, prior to just prior to last season, uh, the Redbirds, who had been owned by their parent club, the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, were sold to um, Peter Freund or Freund, Freund. Jeez. It's like Freund. I'm it's Freund. Freund. I've yeah. spoken to him. About <laughs> Peter Freund. That was a Freundian slip. He uh, he bought the team, a principal owner of the team, prior to the 2016 season, and I guess it made sense when the team was owned by the Cardinals. For Memphis, just to have a fairly generic, uh, very St. Louis centric logo, but with then they're still a Cardinals affiliate, but with the Cardinals not owning them anymore, I think the new ownership. Uh, obviously, they didn't have time to get that get that together in in time for 2016, but I'm sure it was a thought right off the bat that um, you know, now that we're not owned by the Cardinals, we're going to keep the name, we're going to keep keep the team colors, um, we're not going to sever that association in any way, but you know, we want something that's specific to Memphis. And that's what they did, and that's what was unveiled today as I speak here on a Wednesday evening at 5.34 p.m. And uh, so, yeah, Memphis, known for the nightlife, known for Beale Street, um, and that's what they're trying to evoke. Uh, so the uh, primary logo and the font that will be across the uh, the, the jerseys um, are meant to evoke neon signs. The M on the jerseys in, in an alternate cap 
has a musical notes and neon tubing kind of look, which is also a callback to the Memphis Blues and their logo of the late 60s and early 70s. The Memphis Blues primarily played in the Texas League, and uh, I think we forget sometimes that Memphis was a Texas League market uh, despite not being in Texas, but that goes that holds true today with a lot of the teams in the Texas League. But anyhow, and then for those, uh, those of us following logos throughout the offseason, this marks the first time that the new logo, the new identity – of the 2016-17 offseason was not done by Brandios. Okay, and we mentioned that earlier in the show. Tyler, so you were so you excited that for that to come up. <laughs> I was because uh, we mentioned that every identity up until this point had been Brandios, but Memphis is not. Memphis is not. It is Studio Simon, which um, I think if you go back you know, four or five years ago, there was much more of a back and forth. I mean, not a direct back and forth between Brandios and Studio Simon. But during this time when logos were being unveiled, they'd be like, oh, Studio Simon. Oh, Brandios. Oh, Studio Simon. It was a lot more um, kind of even in the back and forth between the two. Brandios has been a lot more assertive and aggressive within the world of minor league baseball. Um, they are obviously more over the top and more of an advocate of a total new identity. Uh, I think some teams and some franchises, depending on the ownership, depending on the market, maybe don't feel uh, as comfortable with that approach and they want to go for something maybe a little more traditional, a little more streamlined, which um, potentially, not that Brandios can't do those things, but I think it lends itself sometimes more to uh, Studio Simon and uh, Dan Simon, the head of that company and his aesthetic. And um you know, I think Brandios, done, Brandios has done some great work, but I was happy to see Studio Simon back in the minor league game with this one. Um, always enjoy their work as well. It's really great. My only qualm, and then we're going to get into an offshoot of this discussion, but I, I, I get irked when teams – they have Memphis on both jerseys, and this Redbird script that's in the primary logo is fantastic, but it's not on the home jersey. Home jersey says Memphis. Road jersey says Memphis. They've also unveiled a powder blue alternate jersey, which kind of evokes the Cardinals of the 80s, and they have their redesigned uh, Rocky the uh, the logo which goes on the chest of the uh, the alternate, Rocky the Redbird. So – you can check all that stuff out at MILB.com. One thing that has come out of this is it's early, but a, a good uh, PCL Twitter feud has erupted from this. The Nashville Sounds uh, went after the Redbirds just about an hour ago and said, uh, hey, at Memphis Redbirds, that new logo is very L.A. Chargers of you, and pieced the, the new Memphis logo next to an old Nashville logo, which is also a music note. Memphis has since fired back with – Memphis Sounds, 1974 to 1975. Memphis Blues, 1968 to 1976. Nashville Sounds, founded 1978. So the assertion there that Nashville stole Memphis's name, Memphis is doing something based off the logo. I like that we already have Twitter feuding going on in January. Everybody's ready for the season. Yeah, you know, nice job from the Nashville Sounds to, to – you know, getting a little beef here because everyone enjoys a good Twitter feud on a uh, January afternoon in the off season. But I do think Memphis has this one because, as they pointed out, and as we mentioned earlier, uh, the Memphis Blues had this uh, logo first, and then Memphis did spend a few years as the Sounds before the Nashville Sounds. So uh, I think they can lay claim to that history, and they could really turn it back on Nashville Sounds and say, "You guys are the ones copying us." But really, you know, there's room for both. Let's be all inclusive. Let's not. Let's not. You know, pick favorites. Let's just love everyone. Let's just not fight. It. Well, they did end with Nashville saying, "Fine, we'll play nice and hug it out. See you June 9th. So, you know, everybody's all set. Yeah, no hard feelings. We're gonna move on from this and be stronger <laughs> together. Well, there's one thing I wanted to go back to when you're talking about Studio Simon and you know, Tyler talked before about you know kind of the touchstones of Brandiose, but does Studio Simon kind of have? its own style that we can look to every time they touch a logo or is there something kind of unique about this Memphis look from them? Um, well, I think this is a unique one because it's so specific to what Memphis wanted to capture in their regional identity. But I, I do feel that um, Studio Simon on the whole is going to be um, a little more, I don't want to say old fashioned, but um, it, it often, they will often kind of harken back to previous eras just in the more clean, streamlined, uh, more traditional look. Uh, they did Daytona, Daytona Tortugas a few years back. You can think of that one like a new team, new team name, and a kind of you know somewhat out there name. But if you look at that logo, it kind of fits in an aesthetic that doesn't. That kind of says the name is maybe the craziest aspect of this. Whereas Brandio says, okay, the name's kind of crazy, so we're gonna make the logo look even crazier um, and, and really double down on uh, 
you know, how irreverent this can be. And in the Studio Simon one, there is the alternate logo. It's on the, uh, one of the, the alternate jersey patch of Rocky the Redbird. And whereas we often talk about Brandios having the, um, alternate logos of the mascot in question swinging a bat or something yeah. repurposed as a bat, here we have in the Studio Simon creation, Rocky the Redbird, uh, he looks like he's about to deliver a pitch. And that gets, you know, I think that gets us all to thinking that we see all these alternate logos and we become so used to them having bats and thinking they're hitters and only offense. But, you know, you can be a pitcher, too. Yeah, and he's left-winged, apparently. So left-winged. it's good to know. Memphis like Redbirds Rocky is a southpaw. A south-wing. South-wing, south yeah. If I'm going to call him left-wing, I can't call him a south A south-call. 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 Anyway, we're going to stay in the PCL. Uh, and there was another big kind of, you know, news this week in that, A, I did not know an emoji can be owned. So that broke. And Same. now we know the Fresno Grizzlies slash tacos, who would always seem to be in the news somehow, now own the taco emoji. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Ben? Well, Fresno and tacos, I mean, the Fresno Grizzly, Fresno and tacos go back to pretty much as long as there have been tacos in America. They, uh, Fresno really can lay claim to um, it being the taco, taco capital of the U.S. in terms of uh, how long tacos have been a staple of the culture there. Um, often, you know, you know, the original food truck selling to migrant workers and day laborers. Um, the Fresno Grizzlies and Taco Connection goes back uh, about seven years now when the team started doing the taco truck throwdown, bringing the taco trucks to the ballpark, making the competition. It became a massively successful promotion. And after a number of years of that, always seeking to grow this signature event bigger and bigger, um, in 2015, for the first time, they had that one-night promo where they changed the name of the tacos and they had the requisite theme uniforms. That was so successful that last year they announced that they would be the tacos every Tuesday for Taco Tuesdays. And uh, had a, a special set of more, uh, you know, lime green style taco uniforms. This year, they introduced the 2017 taco uniforms, and those are the Zarape prints, which uh, were introduced last season as uh, the Taco Truck Throwdown special uniform. And that's where no hat or no uh, is the same. There's these alternate uh, alternate swaths of color on every single cap, which is unique. And now they have those same swaths of color on the jersey. And so that was the big news that they, uh, you know, have yet again unique taco logos. Uh, they will play as the Fresno Tacos every Tuesday home game, and they said they will even take the tacos on the road this year. I imagine that would buy, wow. be by request of the visiting team. I imagine, but the in addition to the ten Tuesday home games, they will play some on the road as well. And uh, in addition to that, kind of. You know, the, the Fresno Grizzlies slash tacos are always a team that are seeking to do things first and, uh, sort of most over the top. They announced yesterday that they had bought the taco emoji. And, uh, so now they own it. And you really kind of got to be a really into the wonky side of the internet to really understand what constitutes, uh, owning an emoji. They made a $5,000 donation to Unicode.com. Um, they said it's a, the emoji is the gift to the people of Fresno, but if anyone wants to buy it from them, the negotiations start at $1 million. Um, so I'm still looking into it a little unclear what constitutes ownership, but this is 5000 real dollars the team spent to kind of adopt this emoji, make it theirs, um, and you know, kind of give it as a gift to the people of Fresno and make it uh, you know, part of a – the way they keep blowing things out with the tacos and think of uh, new ways to do things. Um, you know, now they, they own this emoji and, uh, maybe a listener out there can explain, explain Unicode, uh, and adopted characters a little better, but bottom line, Fresno Grizzlies own the taco emergence, uh, emoji. If other, uh, chain restaurants want to buy it again, the Grizzlies slash tacos say it'll cost a million dollars and that the first $5,000 from that million would go toward, uh, clothing, would go toward uh, clothing for cilantro, the special tacos, cilantro Gomez, excuse me, the special taco mascot. Man, talking about this stuff wears me out. 
Just in case you're wondering, Unicode.org says, quote, the Unicode consortium enables people around the world to use computers in any language. Our freely available specifications and data form the foundation for software internalization in all major operating systems, search engines, applications of the World Wide Web. An essential part of our mission is to educate and engage academic and scientific communities and the general public, and I don't have any idea what that means, but there, that's something that was in Fresno's release, which I assume to some of you, means something yeah and they're 25 gold sponsors the highest level of emoji sponsorship so the fresno grizzlies slash fresno tacos are right up there um i think they were inspired by the oakland days who uh were gold sponsors of the elephant emoji and the baseball emoji and the tree emoji. and the tree emoji for reasons we're not exactly clear on and then you know some of them were just a little hard to figure out uh Ford has sponsored a car emoji, I guess a good move. IBM has sponsored a cloud emoji. Uh, just some man, maybe just a civilian, Jason Jenkins, sponsored the poop emoji. <laughs> so he owns poop. Talk to Jason Jenkins if you want to buy some poop. I want to have Jason Jenkins money. That's when I can just throw out five grand to sponsor the poop emoji. It's the kind of it's the kind of money I want on life. Tyler, like if you, so, I just want to know if Tyler could buy, be a gold sponsor of an emoji. And essentially own it, what emoji he would own? Yeah, that's a good question. I um, let me look through my recently used emojis now. I feel like that would be uh, the way that I could tell. I really enjoy the thinking face emoji. Um, you know, with the guy with his hand up, just looking vaguely annoyed. Uh, because I think I use that in a sarcastic sense uh, more often than anything. I'd probably go with that one. Okay, that's a good one. I like it. Five thousand dollars. What? Or I could do the the trademark once it's my initials. See, that's the thing. Somebody already owns the trademark one. Oh, that's what? what I was gonna say. Like, that's the craziest thing that somebody uh, owns the, like the trademark what emoji. A dork. So if you're trying to trademark something in your emojis, it's already been yeah. trademarked in a way. It's just like oh, the levels crazy. on this thing. Are yeah, just... we've gone down a little too deep down this uh, <laughs> this particular rabbit hole. But what else is new? So congratulations to the Grizzlies slash Tacos who now will presumably reap some benefit from uh, adopting the taco emoji. Um, and now I want tacos. Uh, ben, what else is coming up? You got uh, a story coming to the site uh, about the Charleston River Dogs, correct? Yeah, just, you know, my regular scheduled feature um, at the winter meetings. The Charleston River Dogs won the inaugural uh, Charles K. Murphy Patriot Award uh, for outstanding work with the military and the community. Um, Charles Murphy was the... Um, president of the Florida State League who died about a year ago and this award was he was a veteran and this award was in his honor um, so in learning about that at the winter meetings I thought me I want to reach out to them and do a story on it because one of their areas of focus is uh, hiring uh, military veterans as game day employees they've just added a um, Air Force reservist um, to their full-time staff uh, on the sales staff um, they have a real commitment to the military, and since that's something that a lot of teams focus on, I just wanted to talk to them, see what they're doing, and uh, write about that. So that's what I did, and that'll be up on the site on Thursday, the Charleston River Dogs and their work uh, with the military. And uh, beyond that, we're just going to keep on rolling. You know, it's been a – we were not in the office on Monday, and man, yesterday with the uh, the tacos news and today with the Memphis Redbirds and working on a regular scheduled story, um, things stay busy. That's the way it should be in January. keeps us all from going insane. And uh, Benjamin Hill, you can find on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz, as we have so clearly established. And uh, you can check out the blog, which is bensbiz.mlblogs.com. More stuff on the Redbirds and on the tacos and on all that kind of stuff uh, up at the site and at the blog. Also, by the way, uh, the Redbirds have a cool Adobe Spark page that they created to unveil this new identity. So if you really want to nerd out and see some of the history and some of the photos of Memphis that went into the inspiration of this, you can check that out there uh, at the Memphis Redbirds site. So... There we have it. Thanks, man. There, hey, you're welcome. You're always welcome. Rapid things up on episode number 93 of the Show Before the Show podcast, which, again, you can find on iTunes. You can find on the Stitcher app. You can find it at milb.com slash podcast. And uh, big thanks to all of you who have already rated and reviewed and subscribed to the Show Before the Show. Before we get out of here... First, a big thanks to Josh Morgan of the Texas Rangers and to Benjamin Hill as well. And uh, some Texas Rangers news. We started recording today at uh, about 4.30 Eastern time. 
and we are now just past 6 o'clock Eastern time. So we do have the results in, and the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, will welcome three inductees in 2017. Jeff Bagwell, the Houston Astros, Tim Raines of the Montreal Expos, and Yvonne Rodriguez of the Texas Rangers and the Florida Marlins and others. Uh, good class. This is a really good class. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I think they're all three Hall of Famers. I mean, I think there are plenty more Hall of Famers uh, still on the ballot, but to see you know people get their just rewards is is always fun, and and to have a good healthy class like three um, is a solid year. Should make for a fun day in Cooperstown. Uh, should make for a fun day tomorrow when I head to the uh, to Midtown Manhattan yeah. for the uh, Hall of Fame press conference. Last couple of years I've been able to do that and ask the the inductees about their minor league experience. Last year got it to do it in a kind of fun way with uh, Ken Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza uh, coming at it from very different ends of the the draft um and you know this group I'll, I'll be able to ask the same stuff uh all three kind of made their way quickly through the minors so they'll have maybe a little less to talk about than a journeyman in the way of piazza but um yeah hopefully that we'll get some good stories out of that and you can look for that on the site on friday so that is coming up later on this week. Congratulations to those three guys, Jeff Bagwell, Tim Raines, and Yvonne Rodriguez, all headed for the Hall of Fame in 2017. You ever been to Cooperstown for a Hall of Fame weekend? Uh, not for a Hall of Fame weekend. No, I have been. Uh, I would like to go since I've turned 21. I know the Amagang Brewery is a fantastic uh, – it, it makes for a great weekend trip uh, if you're ever looking for, to go outside of Hall of Fame weekend. But, uh, no, never been there for the spectacle that it, that is uh, induction weekend. I haven't either. Have you? I have to do that. No, no, we'll have to uh, we'll have to make that a thing. Yeah, we'll make, it, we'll make it a show before the show pilgrimage or something like that. Oh, that would be a lot of fun. Be cool. If we could try to make that happen, maybe this summer, maybe some other. Like, well, I mean, there's bound to be based on who's still left on the ballot. There's bound to be some great classes coming up too. Yeah, so. absolutely. And uh, so, once more, congratulations to those three, and thanks a ton to all of you for tuning in. We're gonna get out of here for episode number ninety three, but uh, back with us next week for our it'll be our final show in a month without baseball. So there you go. Pitchers and catchers set to report in less than a month in our final show of January coming up next week. Thanks to Josh Morgan. Thanks to Ben Hill. Thanks to Sam Dykstra. And uh, that's all. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.